Hello, my name is Neil Campbell, based up here in sunny Gateshead in the northeast of England, and I'm a grief specialist practitioner, counsellor, supervisor, trainer, researcher, and presenter. I've been a counsellor now for more than 27 years, and for 23 of those years, specialising in working with bereaved adults and bereaved children. I'm also the principal and course leader of the Campbell Grief Institute, through which we offer and deliver a select number of specialised accredited grief awareness training courses covering such areas as the midlife orphan, death in the womb and at birth, gender differences of bereaved parents, anticipatory grief, grief in the aftermath of disasters, bereavement by suicide, bereavement by homicide, bereavement support group facilitation, working and supporting with bereaved children and young people and leading to our unique and challenging 16-month Level 6 Diploma in Grief Counselling. Grief is a unique, complex and layered experience. And to work with and listen to and support and be there for the bereaved, we need to have a good overall grasp and understanding of grief and its related symptomatology. But beneath this umbrella are a significant number of major grief issues, concepts and types of bereavement that each have their own unique nuances, dynamics and impacts. And for those practitioners, I believe, who want to employ the words specialist and specialise with reference to their grief practice, I would respectfully suggest that a good grasp and understanding of each of these singular areas of grief is also essential to and for their work with the bereaved. This is the fourth podcast in a series of understanding aspects of grief and it's designed to raise and enhance awareness around each of these complex areas. And as always, here at the Campbell Grief Institute and our sister organisation, PCA Support Services, we believe that the more we learn, the more we will know, the more we know, the more we will be able to empathise, and the more we can empathise, the richer our presence will be with our clients sitting in front of us. When we start to work with a bereaved client, we will discover very soon that their lost loved one will have died in one of two ways. Suddenly, through a heart attack, stroke, aneurysm, domestic or road accident, suicide or even homicide, or perhaps in the aftermath of a disaster, or on the other hand, after a short-term, medium-term or long-term illness, such as cancer, leukaemia or dementia. If the death of their loved one is in the latter category, then it is highly likely that the client will have experienced anticipatory grief and it may well be that what he or she brings to the sessions with you, amongst many other issues and feelings, is an account of this whole experience or parts of it. So again, I feel it's essential for the grief practitioner to have a good grasp and understanding of this whole anticipatory grief experience in order to enrich the practitioner's presence and to enhance the quality of the practitioner's empathy. I think before going any further, I would recommend quite eagerly um, for listeners to go and have a look, or maybe another look if you've read it before, at Elizabeth Kubler's work on death and dying from 1969, 
which was related to a PhD research project that she was helping with at the University of Chicago and based around the Chicago Seminary Hospital. And it was about how the dying were treated by the medical staff with regards to their illness and the terminality of that illness. What the dying have to teach doctors and nurses and clergy and their families. And of course, it highlighted Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief. Now, quite often, I feel that the Kubler-Ross's stages of grief are misused by placing them in amongst the other models and theories of grief, William Worden, Murray Parks, etc. When in fact, her stages of grief are about anticipatory grief, not post-death conventional grief. But it's well worth a read, and I would recommend the book to anybody to start off with an understanding of anticipatory grief. So what is anticipatory grief? Well, here's a couple of quotes. The first one is from a book, Anticipatory Grief, 1974, edited by Bernard Schoenberg. Anticipatory grief, the phenomenon of bereavement prior to the actual loss, is a rehearsal of the grief process when death is impending. An understanding of anticipatory grief is essential for the application of psychosocial concepts for the care of the terminally ill patient and his family. And another quote from Humphrey Zimfer's Counselling for Grief and Bereavement in 1996, and I quote, Anticipatory grief is a term that is often most associated with a terminal illness, with a prognosis of impending death within a stated time period. However, anticipatory grief can refer to a process for any loss that is expected in the future. So anticipatory grief really is about grieving prior to the actual death itself. It encompasses a period of anticipation before the expected time of death. Some have described it as a rehearsal studio for the about to be bereaved, perhaps starting to explore how they're going to feel, how they're going to cope and what will happen after the death of their loved one. And of course, anticipated grief starts when a loved one receives a terminal diagnosis for their illness. But it's important to remember, and I'll return to this again, that it is an experience and a period that would be felt by two parties, both the family and friends of the loved one and the dying person himself or herself. Perhaps at this stage, the most important question to examine is does the experience of anticipatory grief have a significant impact on post-death conventional grief? Does it help the bereaved after the death of their loved one to have gone through it? Or does it make the grief harder to bear, a sort of double whammy? Does it depend on how fully the anticipatory grief experience was engaged with, or was it held at arm's length, either by the dying person, by those close to him or her, or both? At present, it is still, in my view, an under-researched area, and the jury would seem to appear to be still out on this particular question. However, my own experience with clients is that for every client that has benefited from the anticipatory grief experience and been able to address some of the intense feelings that grief evokes in advance, there is another client who find themselves doubling up and repeating the distress, pain and anguish all over again after the death. If we compare the two experiences, anticipatory grief on the one hand and post-death conventional grief on the other hand, 
we will see that there are a range of similarities and also differences. The similarities mainly centre around grief symptomatology, all of those feelings and emotions that you might experience after the death of a loved one, shock, denial, sadness, confusion, anger, bitterness, guilt, resentment, exhaustion, feeling lost and overwhelmed, stressed, traumatised, bewildered and many others. These are all of the feelings and emotions that the breed may experience after a close loss and they are also all of the feelings that the about to bereave person will feel in the anticipatory grief period. However, it is unlikely that two feelings, relief and liberation, is going to be felt during anticipatory grief. Quite common for somebody in post-death conventional grief to have those two feelings, probably followed by guilt, but it's unlikely to see that in anticipatory grief. However, in addition, the final so-called stage of Kubler-Ross's five-stage model, acceptance, can also be found in both anticipatory grief and post-death conventional grief. With regards to anticipatory grief, it is acceptance of the reality of the terminal diagnosis and what will happen in the near future. With regards to post-death conventional grief, the acceptance is also there, but this time acceptance of the reality of the death. In other words, that we can't see our loved one again, hear their voice over the phone again, and we won't wake up in the morning and see their face on the pillow next to us. But of course, as I've said before, there are a number of differences between the two. To start off with, and it is important to remember this, with anticipatory grief, there are two parties involved. The about to be bereaved family and friends and the dying person. Whereas with post-death conventional grief, there is only one, the bereaved individual. And it is an important difference because that relationship between the dying person and his or her family is crucial to the whole nature and tone of the anticipatory grief experience and the party's engagement or lack of engagement with it. Second major difference are two time factors. The first obviously seems fairly obvious. Anticipatory grief has a finite endpoint. As soon as the loved one, the terminal person dies, then anticipatory grief ceases and we are into post-death conventional grief. Whereas with post-death conventional grief, that in most cases has no finite endpoint. The second time factor is around stress. With anticipatory grief, the stress levels are being experienced by the family and friends of the dying person increase exponentially as the expected time of death nears approaches. Once post-death conventional grief enters, then the levels of stress will, in most cases, start to decline, though the intensity of the emotions and feelings and sadness will increase and last for some considerable time. And then we come to that interesting commodity, hope, and the existence of hope in and with anticipatory grief. Some years ago, I once found myself in quite a bit of trouble when I gave a talk on anticipatory grief to a local combined parish council and women's institute audience. 
I was touching on the part that hope could play in the experience and the problem around hope in the anticipatory grief experience. And I rather, looking back, rashly and bumptiously added that hope was the enemy of the anticipatory grief experience. Looking back, not the best phrasing and not the best way to present it. Because whereupon were shouts of, are you saying we shouldn't have hope? And other cries of protest. Three ministers of church who were attending the meeting leapt to their feet and took me to task for quite a few minutes. Trying to escape my predicament, I stumbled through, of course we need hope, I replied. I'm always hopeful. And of course, with a loved one fighting a terminal illness, it's absolutely natural to cling to hope. Let's leave no stone unturned. We must explore every possible avenue of help. Let's pray for a miracle. Let's hope for a miracle. But I stuck by what I said when the existence of hope and the adherence to hope by both the dying person and his or her loved ones, or by either of them, can prevent them from accepting the inevitable and making good use of the anticipatory grief period. I worked for seven months some, some time ago with a wonderful lady, a retired ward sister, whose youngest daughter of three was dying from leukaemia. What made it harder for my client was that her daughter and the other two daughters and the rest of the family insisted on my client taking a nursing role towards her terminal daughter. She didn't want the Macmillan nurses, she didn't want the Marie Curie nurses, she wanted her mother to be there to do all the medication, the injections and all of the other nursing care. And of course, my client, her mother, couldn't refuse. But it meant that she found it so hard during the anticipatory grief experience to take on both roles of nurse and mother and instead found that she only had the strength to do the nursing role and during that period they all the family the other daughters the mother and the daughter all clung to hope naturally searching the internet for new treatments and medical advances on a daily basis finding some taking them off to the consultants each week having hopes raised and then dashed almost on a weekly basis, but all the while fiercely clinging to hope and a possible miracle, while steadfastly rejecting the inevitable. And it was only in the last few days of the daughter's life that both she, the daughter, and her mother, my client, began to accept the reality of what was about to happen. And by that time the daughter was so heavily medicated that she tended to be drifting in and out of sleep on a regular basis and it seemed that the time and opportunity for the mother and daughter to say all those things that needed to be said and to be able to enjoy some precious reminiscing time had almost passed them by. That regret and the missing out on being more of a mother than a nurse during the anticipatory grief period were themes that we returned to each week as I worked with her for a further eight months after the daughter's death. On the other hand, we rarely see the commodity of hope appearing as a major ingredient or part of post-death conventional grief symptomatology. It did make an appearance in 1962 as one of the stages, I think it was the ninth stage, 
in Granger Westberg's Good Grief book in 1962. The hope that the breed will get through the darkness of their grief and light will return. Going back to Bernard Chernbuck's book, Anticipatory Grief in 1974, here's a quote around that very commodity. While there is life, there is hope, as the saying goes, and hope, therefore, can accompany anticipatory grief, while it does not, at least in the same realistic or short-term sense, accompany conventional grief. What about other differences? Well, there's a trio of possible feelings and attitudes that you will get in anticipatory grief that you won't get in post-death conventional grief. We're talking about ambivalence, the Lazarus syndrome, and Deshwith thinking. If the anticipatory grief period continues for too long, then it is possible that the family and loved ones of the dying person could start to detach prematurely lessening their contact and participation with their dying loved one. They have already engaged in a significant amount of mourning in advance, part of the rehearsal studio, and they may find themselves experiencing strong feelings of ambivalence the longer the period goes on. Again, going back to Bernard Schoenberg's book, Anticipatory Grief. Ambivalence has a special impact on anticipatory grief that differs in some respects from its impact on conventional grief. The difference is the impact of ambivalence on the anticipatory grief of family members is that the target of ambivalent feelings is not only still alive, but also particularly vulnerable, balanced between life and death. So these feelings towards a dying person, while that person is still alive and struggling, can lead then to feelings of frustration, anger and resentment on both sides, as well as guilt on the part perhaps of the family and hurt on the part of the dying person. As they said in Schoenberg's quote there, the problem is that the target of the ambivalence feelings is still alive, struggling and fighting in the throes of their illness. And then we come to the Lazarus syndrome and death thinking. These two go almost hand in hand. The dying person is fighting for his or her very life. We are approaching the predicted time of death that the medics and the nurses have diagnosed. And they go past that expected time of death. They're staying alive well past the expected date of death. And of course, people around them will say, how brave, what courage. Gosh, they're a fighter. She's always been a fighter. He's always been a fighter. It's amazing. It's wonderful. This is the Lazarus syndrome. But for the family and friends, while marvelling at their loved one's fortitude, have reached such a high level of intense stress as the expected date nears arrives and is then left behind, they are now being asked to regroup, to rearrange socially, emotionally, mentally and psychologically and consequently, it is not uncommon for mourners to start either thinking or even articulating, well, death's going to happen at some time. I wish it would just happen now. I know he's fighting so strongly, but the inevitable is going to come and we need to get through that. If only they died now and we could just get on with it. Naturally, this will be followed by intense feelings of guilt and shame at even having those feelings while the person is fighting and struggling.
By its very nature, the anticipatory grief period becomes a type of role rehearsal for those about to be bereaved. After he or she dies, where will I live? How am I going to cope? How can I manage the children? What will we do for money? How will I deal with the bills and paperwork? How am I going to run this business? How will I pay the mortgage? How am I going to manage and pay the staff? These are natural questions to ask in the circumstances. They're all around the fears for the future. But of course, again, their loved one is still alive, struggling for life. And such thoughts and questions, though natural and important, could well evoke a certain amount of guilt and shame for even thinking those thoughts in the first place when their loved one is still alive, especially if such fears and thoughts are articulated with other family members and then rejected with horror. And of course, talking of family and loved ones and anticipated grief, this period is going to present the family of the dying person with a number of extremely difficult challenges around trying to secure a reasonable psychosocial balance. Psychosocial balance. Having to balance a range of competing demands. The balance between emotionally and psychologically accepting the terminal illness and the impending death. And on the other hand, for some, the reluctance to accept the reality, a form of denial, or maybe simply at that moment, just too enormous to deal with. And balancing that against normal family demands, work, school, children, pets, food, shopping, practical thing like bins and cutting the grass, etc. Against the demands of building relationships with the dying person's carers as they regularly visit their loved one in a hospital or a hospice. Relationships with nurses and doctors, social workers and counsellors. Against the demand of trying to meet and satisfy the needs of their dying loved one on a daily and regular basis. Against the demands of trying to stay involved with their dying loved one. Against the demand, quite naturally, of trying to start separating from their dying loved one in preparation for the impending death itself against the demands of the changes in family roles, perhaps, as family members, siblings, children, take on the roles of the dying person or swap roles themselves, against the demands of rehearsing what life may be like after the death of their loved one, against the demand of preparing to say goodbye, against the demand of right through the anticipatory grief process, trying to make sense of what's happened and what's about to happen. And I suppose I could sum it up very simply this balancing act, growing closer to the loved one, holding on to the loved one, and preparing to let go of the loved one. What an immense challenge. Engagement in the anticipatory grief period requires acceptance of the reality of the situation and a commitment to make the best possible use of this precious time from both the dying person and his or her family. This is never easy at all, as many, both the dying person and their families, 
are still anchored in Kubler-Ross's initial stage of anticipatory grief, denial, shock, disbelief, anguish, anger, bitterness, and hope. However, if the possibility is that they could reach some form of acceptance, then the anticipatory grief period can be emotionally and psychologically heartwarming and very precious. There's practical stuff that can be done. Finishing off wills and the disposal of precious possessions, settling bills, sorting papers out, funeral plans to be completed, people to contact, education perhaps to be completed in some cases, sorting, tidying, arranging. But perhaps more importantly, places to see, wishes to be fulfilled, mending fences and building bridges, and healing family feuds. Chance to say sorry, a chance to forgive and ask for forgiveness, a chance to reminisce and remember and recollect, a chance to say our thank yous, a chance to express our love, a chance to say what needs to be said. And then there are just a few other issues that perhaps need to be you need to be aware of in the anticipatory grief period. One of them is called death trajectories. With a terminal illness, we may find that the anticipatory grief period and any predicted timelines are further complicated by what we call death trajectories. And there are four of them. The first of which is where the illness will result in a certain death and in a known time. So we know that it is cancer or leukemia, we know it's terminal, and we know roughly, according to the medics and the nurses, how long that it will be before the person dies. So anyway, we know where everyone stands and how we need to prepare and when we need to prepare for. But that situation can be further clouded with the other three types of trajectories. The second of which is a certain death but an unknown time. So it's a terminal illness, we know that, but no one in the medics or the doctors and the nurses has a realistic idea of the timeline. How do you come to make sense of this scenario and how do you prepare? And then the third trajectory is an uncertain death, but a known time. So our loved one is still being tested. We don't know for sure if the illness is terminal or not. But if it is terminal, then we have a good idea or a rough idea of when the actual impending death, if it is that illness, will occur. And then, of course, the worst of all death trajectories, an uncertain death and an unknown time. Tests are still going on. The diagnosis is not known yet. It could be a terminal illness. It might not be. And if it does prove to be the terminal illness, then the nature of the illness means that no one really knows how long the illness will last, making it very, very difficult and very emotionally full of emotional anxiety about how to prepare. For the family of the dying loved one, the anticipatory grief period can present an immense existential challenge 
a form of existential anxiety. There is nothing quite like seeing your loved one struggling and fighting for his or her life each day in a bed to remind us of our own sense of mortality. There for the grace of God go I, we might say. Seeing someone dying from a progressive illness highlights our own sense of mortality and tells us that that may well be our fate in the future in time. Over the years, I've had many clients who have ended up caring for and looking after terminally ill loved ones, terminally ill parents or grandparents or spouses, partners, or even children. And this usually happens when the client that I'm dealing with, the person is in a nursing or caring role in their daytime jobs. And consequently, the dying loved one and the rest of the family are only too happy to persuade that person to act as their carer and their nurse to do the injections and the medication. Unfortunately, during the anticipatory grief period, I have found with the vast majority of those clients that they can't take on the two roles. They cannot be the carer and at the same time the son, the daughter, the partner or parent. They only have enough emotional energy and wherewithal to do the one role of carer and that's the responsibility they feel. After the death of the loved one they may have deep regrets at having to be the carer and not to be able to be the actual role they wanted to be which is son, daughter, partner, mother or father. So as I hope you can see that the anticipatory grief experience can be not only highly emotional and distressing but complex and full of demands and challenges on your bereaved client. And it may well be that your client will want to talk about the whole experience or parts of it and make sense of the whole or those individual parts. What do they need from you? Well, they need competent compassion and knowledgeable empathy. So I hope this small particular podcast has shed a little light for you on yet another important nuanced area of grief and I hope that it will add to your knowledge for working with the bereaved. Thank you for listening and I look forward to seeing you next time.